On this week's On the Media from WNYC, another edition of our Breaking News Consumer's Handbook. This one is about crime reporting. Lesson one, beware the passive voice. A police officer killed a young girl in a store in Los Angeles. The New York Times headline about it read, Officer whose bullet killed 14-year-old girl. Also on this week's show, the outsized influence of one big city tabloid on bail reform legislation. He called me up to the bench and he says, Scott, you know, I have to set some bail. I don't want to end up on the cover of the New York Post. He actually said the dang words out loud. Plus, if it bleeds, it leads is ancient lore when it comes to the crime beat. But what's the alternative? I will always continue to advocate that the crime beat as we know it should be completely abolished. Why not call that the community listening beat? and actually look at communities historically harmed by these institutions. It's all coming up after this. Listener supported, WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On The Media. I'm Matt Katz, WNYC's public safety reporter, sitting in this week for Brooke Gladstone. Yeah, you heard me right. My beat is public safety. It's what used to be commonly known as the crime beat, but crime is a slippery word. What crime is changes when you cross borders and state lines. What lands you in jail depends on where you live, how much money you have, what you look like, who polices your community. The police, they have a starring role in all crime reporting. And in this week's show, we'll examine the effect of that on how crime is covered and some potential fixes for what ails this troubled beat. For starters, why is it that sources for crime stories come sometimes exclusively from the law enforcement establishment? After the mass shooting in a New York subway last month, a litany of the city's former police commissioners made the news. I want to bring in former NYPD police chief Bernie Carrick. Former New York City Police Commissioner Dermot Shea. Howard Safer, the uh, former NYPD Former New York City Police Commissioner Bill Bratton. Joining us now, legendary former NYPD Commissioner Ray Kelly. One answer could be a slick PR operation. This week, San Francisco's Government Audit and Oversight Committee convened a hearing about how much money their police department spends on what they call strategic communications, or as Alec Karakatsanis, director of the advocacy group Civil Rights Corps, calls it, public police propaganda. Police departments are an interested political group. They are constantly attempting to increase the size and power of the bureaucracy that they manage. The Oversight Committee was concerned about a, quote, orchestrated and constant narrative that pushed for increased police funding and more police on the streets, all funded by the taxpayers. All told, it's costing millions of dollars a year. And the way in which they're able to set the agenda on the nightly news is unprecedented. The relationships that they're paying people, full-time employees, to build with reporters, the press releases that they send out. But press releases and police incident reports only provide one side of any crime story. And Laura Bennett, director of the Center for Just Journalism, cautions reporters and media consumers alike to apply a critical lens to these kinds of stories. In fact, she has a whole list of what to look out for, and we compiled them for our latest Breaking News Consumer's Handbook, Crime Reporting Edition. Point one, beware a story in which police sources dominate. There have been a bunch of high-profile instances recently where we've learned, often because of bystander video or, in some cases, body cameras, that the initial incident report just wasn't true. The police report after George Floyd died read, man dies after medical incident during police interaction. Of course, that's not true. 
in Buffalo when an initial police report said a, a man tripped and fell during a protest when video showed that a police officer pushed him down, which led to a really severe head injury. BuzzFeed did a really comprehensive investigation of so many instances where police reports did not match body cam or bystander video. I don't think there's like a gotcha term or a particular thing that's going to tell you which police report is accurate and which police report isn't. I do think that we are now aware as a public of a large enough volume of inaccurate police reports that we need to be skeptical every time. If there's an incident involving somebody who's arrested and you're reporting on that and you want to get the arrestee's story inside of things, that person's in custody and you can't call the jail and ask to talk to them as a reporter. There are just structural challenges here when it comes to reporting on law enforcement. I mean, the only way I can talk to somebody at Rikers Island at the New York City jail complex is if they call me. I can't call the jail and ask to talk to the guy you just arrested in in the Bronx. It's... It's challenging. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that our jail and prison systems make it incredibly difficult for incarcerated people to tell their own stories if they want to. I think that the approach for reporters in that case should start with public defenders. Public defenders represent the vast majority of people with criminal charges in this country and an even greater number of people who are incarcerated before trial. So I think starting with the defenders, if the families aren't available, is just the first and probably easiest way to try to dig down below that initial report. And that's something that could have helped tremendously in the reporting around bail reform. You know, I worked on that legislation for three or four years. It's really complicated. It's written in arcane language. It changed several times. A lot of it was really tricky. But public defenders and defense attorneys in general, their job is to understand that law because they're representing clients to whom that law applies. And so just quickly checking in with a public defender that's in your Rolodex as a reporter to say, hey, you know, I got a tip saying that someone was released on bail and then went on to commit a terrible crime. Could you just check the facts for me? There's always going to be a lawyer that's willing to do that. That can be a really simple first line of defense for reporters who have questions about a complicated legal issue or a dubious claim that they've heard from a police department. I covered crime stories in New Jersey for many years, and the public defenders weren't allowed to talk to me. I hear you that maybe that's not always possible. So in a lot of places, there are court watch programs, people who are going in and watching the courts. There's also, this isn't going to be true in every place in the country, but there are increasing numbers of bail funds, nonprofit organizations that bail people out so that they can await trial at home rather than locked up. Bail funds are also another place where you can just start if you're looking to get information about the impact of a certain law on a particular case. So if the local defender office is enabled To provide that, there may be other options for reporters who are looking for a quick double check. Another red flag you say for news consumers is when a suspect's rap sheet is framed as evidence of their moral character. Can you give me some examples of what this framing leaves out? Yeah, so there was a pretty high-profile case where someone was arrested many, many, many times for fare evasion, riding the subway without paying. And it was touted in a lot of outlets in the press as, you know, this is what bail reform is causing. This guy gets out and he goes back and he gets arrested again. And setting aside the fact that 
In New York, if you are arrested multiple times or fail to appear in court multiple times, the law says that the judge can, if they want to, set bail. I'm not saying that that's the right thing. I don't think it's helpful to jail somebody who is just repeatedly, obviously, committing crimes of poverty, which is what fair evasion is, but it is actually possible. But setting that aside, this person had dozens, if not more than 100, of arrests on his record. And that was kind of treated as a gotcha. Like, this is what bail reform is going to get you, somebody who's cycling in and out. And what we need is to be able to lock this person up for longer. And I think it's either the city or Gothamist did a really good article. They spoke with the person's family and, you know, they told a story about mental health struggles and addiction and how their loved one had cycled in and out of jail and, and never gotten the help that they needed. The arguments that you saw in the news media and often being made by police and prosecutors were just more policing, more jail, when to me that rap sheet said what we're doing isn't working. Individuals charged with crimes might be referred to as thugs or perps or inaccurately labeled as gang members. How does this use of language ultimately influence the public's perception about crime? A lot of those words you just mentioned, felon, offender, convict. What we know now is that those words bias readers and viewers of news against the people being labeled. So the organization where I used to work, Forward.us, did some research on this. They would show people news stories with the word felon and then the term person with the felony conviction. And people who see the word felon are less likely when asked later whether they support reform policies like record sealing or easing sentencing enhancements for repeat offenses. So there's a direct impact on public opinion. There are lots of other less obvious and equally harmful types of terms. So passive voice is something we see a lot. Officer-involved shooting, man died in police shooting. There was an example of this that made the rounds a few months ago about an instance where a police officer killed a young girl in a store in Los Angeles. The New York Times headline about it read, Officer Whose Bullet Killed 14-Year-Old Girl. The bullet is being assigned responsibility. That headline should have read, police officer who killed 14-year-old girl, XYZ. There's a, a lot of crime coverage relative to other things. We still have a very small chance of being victims of violent crime, and yet we consume a lot of coverage of violent crime. What should news consumers do about that? People do consume a tremendous amount of crime coverage. Almost every newspaper or every local news station is going to have a crime beat that's just pumping out a really steady volume of these stories. And what we know is that people consistently overestimate crime. Almost every year, the majority of people think crime is going up when almost every year for the last 20-something years, crime has been going down until very, very recently. And we also know that people dramatically overestimate their risk of being a victim of violent crime. So that's the impact of this incredible volume of news coverage about violent crime. I think the question people should ask themselves is, does the media coverage I'm consuming match the things that impact my safety day to day? Housing makes us safe. The air we breathe makes us safe. The water we drink makes us safe. And there are not a lot of news beats dedicated to those things. We've had a couple of really big house fires on the East Coast recently where many people were killed. And in both of those cases, I believe there had been several reported building code violations. And maybe if there were a news beat dedicated to 
building code violations, those landlords would have had to fix the problems and those fires wouldn't have happened. Safety is a really big concept and crime is one part of safety, but it's not the full thing. It it strikes me that numbers in crime stories are particularly perplexing proposition because they can be sliced and diced to say almost anything you want. I mean, toward the end of last year, outlets like the New York Times and NPR warned of a 30% rise in homicides in 2020. They buried the fact that major crimes that year actually declined overall. I will answer that, but I want to quickly just say that crime data itself, what is included in it is really inherently limited. The most common crime data reported by police departments and the crime data that's released at the national level every year by the FBI includes eight crimes. Murder, rape, robbery, assault, arson, burglary, larceny, and motor vehicle theft. That is a very tiny subset of the things that we have deemed illegal as a society and an even tinier subset of the things that harm people. But let's just set all that to the side and say we are going to look at the crime data that's reported by police departments. What can we make of it? Well, for one thing, crime has been on a really steep decline since the mid-90s. We have now a much, 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 much lower crime rate than we did in the late 80s, early 90s. So when you're starting from a lower baseline, any increase is going to be a larger percentage. That's just a mathematical fact. If you go from 10 to 12, that's a 20% increase, right? But it's important to remind yourself that we're starting from a low baseline. Um, Another important thing is that a year-to-year or month-to-month or week-to-week comparison is not really a great metric. Policy, we should be looking at longer-term trends because there's just going to be some variation in really short-term statistics. So if you are reading a news story and you see something about a big jump in crime and the period is this month compared to last month or this year compared to last year, I'd be a little bit skeptical of that. And I would try to find out maybe what is it compared to five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Are we still trending in the right direction? Are we still safer than we were years ago, which I think is going to be the most reliable way to know if what we're doing is working? You know, I spent some time digging through headlines and did a little exercise of rewriting them based on the same data set. So, for example, the San Francisco Chronicle had a headline, California violent crime up 10%, reversing long trend. You could use the exact same data set to write the headline, burglary rate falls to its lowest since California began collecting crime statistics. Here's another example. Oklahoma's violent crime rate higher than average. Okay, same data set, different headline. Oklahoma's robbery rate lower than national average. So I think if you're a reporter or if you're a consumer, trying to get the fuller picture, what's the total crime picture? What's the violent crime picture? The property crime picture? Look at each of the eight individual offenses. Look at different time horizons. I know that's a lot of work, but this is really important stuff. We make really impactful policy based on those numbers, policy that impacts people's safety, that impacts people's freedom. Yeah, I mean, New York City Mayor Eric Adams doubled the number of cops in the subway system following a highly unusual mass shooting in a subway car in Brooklyn last month. I think that this is really the heart of the conversation and the most important point. 
there are so many examples of this. A newspaper called the Eagle Tribune won the Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of Willie Horton in 1988. They published almost 200 stories about Willie Horton in the wake of him being released on furlough and committing a rape and an assault. That volume of coverage infamously impacted a presidential election, but it also resulted in the end of the Massachusetts furlough system. And a lot of attention was paid in subsequent years to programs that allowed people to be released from prison. And you see a lot of states in the years following that abolish their systems of parole. And you see a big push for that at the federal level. But was the Massachusetts furlough system, a major driver of sexual violence in Massachusetts or at the national level? The answer to that is absolutely not. But what we know from research now is that reading stories like that understandably frightens people and that when people are frightened, they become more punitive. It's incumbent upon policymakers and upon journalists to think through the solutions they're proposing when people are frightened. We now have 30 years of research on whether mass incarceration has been an effective public safety intervention. And the evidence is very clear that it has not been. That is just accepted by the academy at this point. So I think that the answer is for reporters and for policymakers to take a deep breath and dig into the evidence and not just follow that gut reaction fear. Okay, that's my, that's my deep breath. <laughs> Laura Bennett is the director of the Center for Just Journalism, a new initiative connecting journalists with evidence and experts on pressing public safety issues. Thank you so very much, Laura. Thanks so much. This has been really fun. You can find the Breaking News Consumer's Handbook, Crime Reporting Edition, on our website, onthemedia.org. Point number three of our handbook reads, if a story blames a single issue like bail reform or focuses only on individual people like soft-on-crime judges and prosecutors, it's likely missing important context about the larger criminal legal system. The New York Post's coverage of bail reform checks all of these boxes. That story is coming up after the break. This is On The Media. NYC Now delivers the most up-to-date local news from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. With three updates a day, listeners get breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from across New York City. By sponsoring programming like NYC Now, you'll reach our community of dedicated listeners with premium messaging and an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to get in touch and find out more. This is On the Media. I'm Matt Katz, sitting in for Brooke Gladstone. A half century ago, a black judge in New York City tested the constitutional premise of bail, that it should only be used to make sure a defendant shows up to court. He offered low or no bail for black defendants who couldn't afford it. And in 1972, he set $500 bail on a man accused and ultimately acquitted of attempted murder and the shooting of a police officer during a stick-up at a steakhouse. The judge's name was Bruce Wright, and in post-civil rights Harlem, on the heels of Jim Crow laws that criminalized black people's existence, he was a hero. I believe, with almost religious zeal, that I must honor the admonition of the last will and testament of Frederick Douglass, which was to all black people in this country, 
agitate, agitate, agitate. And I don't think that my right to agitate stops at the courthouse door. For agitating the police unions who are allied with the dominant New York City tabloids of the era, Bruce Wright was dubbed first by the Daily News and later the New York Post, Turn Him Loose Bruce. That reputation was the reason he said he was banished from criminal court to civil court for four years. Here he is in 1987. Hardly anybody understood or was willing to honor the United States Constitution, especially the Eighth Amendment that says very plainly that bail shall not be excessive. The public, because of the tabloid press, I suppose, and general hysteria about crime, assumed that people who were charged were automatically guilty. Bruce died in 2005, but his son is now the chairman of the New York County Democrats, basically the Manhattan Democratic political boss. This is headquarters, baby. Keith Wright's political clubhouse is on 135th Street in Harlem. It's tiny, lived in, with the morning papers on the table. There are folding chairs out front, and Wright is finishing a cigarette when I walk up. We're here to talk about his father's fights with the newspapers, but Wright is a schmoozer with other stuff he wants to chat about first, like his ambivalence about his upcoming law school reunion. I, mean, I just don't like people tapping me on my belly and shit. Say, oh, you gained a little weight, haven't you? And about how he grew up with Jewish kids and even went to Hebrew school for a bit. My friends were going. I wouldn't know, you know, hang out with them. Did it for like a week, two you, weeks. You remember any prayers? And his work at a lobbying firm in Midtown, which he says is similar to his former job as a New York State Assemblyman. I call it constituent services for white folks. <laughs> All the shit I used to do for free, you know, white folks can pay for it. So. Wright's political clubhouse is down the block from the apartment he grew up in and still lives in. Three blocks up is a street named for his father. When the papers first called his dad, turn him loose Bruce, Wright was in high school. I remember all the white kids coming he's coming up to me. What's wrong with your father? What's wrong with your father? Yeah, I talked to my father about it, and he said, listen, the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution provides that no unreasonable bail should be set. Nobody's been tried, nobody's been convicted, and bail is just to ensure that a person returns to court. And so then I started you know, espousing my knowledge of the Constitution when I was 17 years old. And, you know, all the smart white kids were saying, oh, damn, this black guy must know something. <laughs> but there were threats. I'll never forget when I got a envelope in the mail. I got it full of excrement with a note saying, if your father doesn't stop doing what, what he's doing, this is what you and your whole family are going to look like. And that was because... Because he of his bail watching. policies. Because of the bail policies. Absolutely. Which people would have known about because of the papers. Exactly. Nobody would have known but for the New York Post publicizing it. In Harlem in the 1970s, the community had judge rights back, holding rallies to express their support. Instead of being honored for his courage, compassion, integrity, and ability, he is vilified and subjected to investigations. Yeah. So he was really questioning the bedrock and the foundation of the American criminal justice system. Because it really does come down to if you have money, if you, you have out. money, you're good. But if you don't, you're going to languish in prison. 
In 2019, New York State passed a bail reform law, which eliminated cash bail for most of those charged with misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. The law would keep thousands of people waiting for trial out of the notorious Rikers Island, New York's deadly jail complex known for suicides, brutal assaults, and lack of medical care. But the New York Post, founded by Alexander Hamilton and owned by Rupert Murdoch, saw calamity. The headline the day bail reform went into effect, Welcome to New York, the state where criminals go free. The subhead, get out of jail law, starts today. Another story, same day, it's the year of the perp. From the day the law went into effect until this past April, the New York Post has mentioned bail reform more than 400 times. Yes, we counted and read. Almost all of the stories framed bail reform in a mostly negative light, a constant drumbeat of editorials, columns, letters to the editor, and news stories that made it seem as though bail reform was going to turn New York into something out of the horror movie The Purge, where all crime is legal for 12 hours. At the siren, all emergency services will be suspended. You're government thanks you for your participation. The Post literally ran an article with a police union boss saying New York was now on the verge of the purge. This is the American way. The Post amplified the views of the NYPD and its police unions. Bail is good because keeping bad people locked up keeps everyone safe. Of course, studies show that committing a serious offense while out waiting for a court date is rare, and that sending people to dangerous jails often does more harm than good, but that context is relegated to the bottom of the stories or nowhere at all. In other words, the same as it ever was. You gotta look at your history. The fight hasn't changed. And all along the way, the New York Post has always been there, (laughs) fighting us tooth and nail. Ten days after bail reform went into effect, an alleged unarmed serial bank robber was let out, supposedly due to bail reform. An unnamed police source told the Post that the suspect said upon his release, I can't believe they let me out. What were they thinking? The police union tweeted the article. A week later, the New York Times printed a follow-up. Turns out that since he didn't have a weapon, he might have been released even without the new law. 17 days into bail reform, the Post ran a story about a New Yorker released on bail that they nicknamed Brickman because he allegedly smashed windows with a brick to steal packages. The defendant said he didn't have enough money to eat. His public defender said he wasn't even released due to bail reform, but the Post still called him, quote, the newest bail reform poster boy. And then there's the Poop Perp, nicknamed that by the Post because he allegedly smeared feces on a victim in the subway and got released after his arrest, which the paper attributed to bail reform. The Poop Perp, a.k.a. the feces fiend, said upon arrest, shit happens. Watchdogs noted that the judge still could have set bail under the new law because the man was arrested while out pre-trial on another charge. But that nuance did not get in the way of some good alliterations. There were 22 stories in the Post mentioning the poop perp. Based on his social media rants and outbursts in the courtroom, bail reform advocates speculated that he might be in need of mental health support. The Post called him a sicko. The poop perp story coincided with widespread coverage of an increase in the number of certain violent crimes, prompting a legislator to propose a law to make smearing feces a felony. The Post headline, tough crap. But there was a larger movement afoot. Two months ago, an anonymous source revealed to The Post in a story about the poop perp that the Democratic governor was considering rolling back bail reform. 
Governor Kathy Hochul, up for re-election and facing criticism over rising crime and bail reform, made a deal with fellow Democrats who control the legislature to usher in a bail reform rollback to keep more alleged offenders locked up pre-trial. Hochul's plan was first leaked to The Post. Governor Hochul. A very basic human need is to feel safe and secure for yourself and your family and your parents. And when that evaporates, that shatters the foundation that every person needs to have in order to go forth and have a, a life where you can focus on your work, your family, other objectives. We have to establish that foundation of security once again, and we can do it while protecting the rights of individuals. Elected officials in particular, we're not the most deep-thinking sort of uh, folks, and I include myself in that. Even subliminally, says Keith Wright, the endless stream of crime stories linked with bail reform might have made public officials think there was a political problem brewing. In not wanting to have a political headache, <laughs> you have the folks that wanted to amend the mm-hmm. bail reform, mm-hmm. and thus the political movement to amend bail reform. Especially in an election year. Especially in an election year, absolutely. As Alec Karakatsanis identified at the top of the show, the pressure on politicians to keep pumping money into police departments doesn't materialize out of thin air. It's a coordinated messaging effort. First of all, he identified this issue, propaganda, this issue of misinformation as a racial and social justice issue. Former Brooklyn public defender Scott Heckinger heads a watchdog project called Justice Not Fear. It fact-checks media portrayals of criminal justice issues like bail reform. People, general public, y'all are being lied to. You're being lied to intentionally by police and prosecutors and other public officials, and you need to be smarter and, and more informed consumers of news. Sociologists say anecdotes that provoke fear, like about people with criminal records getting released and committing terrible crimes, stay in our mind longer than fact-based data. As a journalist myself who reports on crime in New York City, I know when it bleeds, it does lead. On the flip side, I happen to think that one horrific outlier tragedy is also not newsworthy. So part of it is the decisions that editors and journalists make, not just on what to write, but on whether to write the dang thing at all. Judges are making calculations too, says Heckinger. They know that if they agitate, as Bruce Wright said, they could earn their own nickname. Heckinger told me about a courtroom exchange with a judge that left him slack-jawed. I was representing... A young woman who was accused of, I think, spanking her young child and was charged with assault in the second degree, which was a Class D violent felony, mandatory minimum, two years in prison, seven years maximum. The judge knew this case was not going anywhere. He called me up to the bench. The prosecution asked for bail. We come up. I'm making this valiant argument for release. And he says, Scott, you know, I have to set some bail. I don't want to end up on the cover of the New York Post. I couldn't believe he was actually, he actually said the dang words out loud. The Post's influence isn't limited to the Big Apple. The paper shares an owner with Fox News, and its stories regularly go national. Well, what do President Biden and the New York poop attacker have in common? Well, they're both shameless about the crap they shove in people's faces. Because we have created a society that has more empathy for the criminal than the cop, which is why New York looks the way it does. New York right now looks like Gotham City before Batman shows up, except Batman's not coming because he's not vaccinated. Meanwhile, a serial pervert, he's been repeatedly exposing himself to kids. 
but he keeps getting released from jail thanks to New York's lax bail reform. Each time he gets arrested, he's out again in a flash. This guy spends so much time with his pants down in broad daylight, he has to put sunscreen on his junk. While the bail reform discourse is mostly settled for the moment, the larger question of who should be in jail and how long they should stay there is an ongoing focus of the paper. After all, Manhattan has a new district attorney, Alvin Bragg, who has said he doesn't want prison terms for most crimes. A Post columnist said that Bragg, quote, gave a green light for anarchy. Another called his policies psychotic. And the Post editorial board dipped into the archives for inspiration, saying Bragg had a let him loose approach to crime. Sound familiar, Keith Wright? You know, what's new is old and what's old is new. Sure. There's nothing new under the sun. It's just that these issues go in cycles. Yeah. History repeats itself. History repeats itself. Crime goes up and right. exactly. all, all the players revert to where they were in Absolutely. 1979. Absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. No question. I'm in a New York state So far in the show, we've highlighted cases of police misdirection, but what if the officers who want to do the right thing? The so-called thin blue line insists that the men and women in blue are loyal first to one another, and going against the tide for police whistleblowers can be career suicide. But some still take that risk. The most famous cop whistleblower is Frank Serpico, who in the late 60s reported widespread corruption and brutality in the New York City Police Department. His complaints led to a New York Times expose, an official commission exploring police corruption, and in 1973, the Al Pacino movie Serpico. Frank, we wash our own laundry around here. Oh, yeah? Now, you could be brought up in charges for I this. I always thought so, but the oh, reality is that we do not wash our own trouble, laundry. Sir, it just gets dirty. You are in trouble. I don't care if I'm in trouble. I don't care who gets it anymore, including myself. We spoke to Serpico after George Floyd's murder in 2020, when he was helping to get the word out about legislation to protect police whistleblowers. We're still operating on old draconian thug squad principles about how many people you can lock up instead of how many people can you keep out of jail. That proposed legislation failed to gain traction. But this February, Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly introduced a new law that aims to provide stronger protections for those who seek to expose police abuse. Tom Devine is the legal director of the Government Accountability Project, which advocates for whistleblower protections. And he explained to me just how the legislation was revived. First, I'd like to credit you folks. Senator Connolly was inspired to introduce the bill after listening to your program with Frank Serpico on it about the need for these rights. Devine says the legislation would protect anyone who provides evidence of police misconduct. So protect victims, citizen witnesses who have smartphones, civil rights groups, the media. It protects the law enforcement officers who refuse to violate the law. It would have best practice confidentiality rights for those who don't want to be exposed. And it would protect them against all forms of retaliation, not just workplace harassment, but also civil and criminal liability. One of the ugliest, most horrible things that we've been coming across in our new report, Breaking the Blue Wall of Silence, is that police departments try to prosecute the honest law enforcement officers who challenge police department crimes. What are they prosecuting them for? 
Well, I'll give you the example of Javier Esqueda. He was a training supervisor in Joliet, Illinois. He discovered that one of his trainees was involved in a George Floyd-style murder. He reported it internally, was told to keep quiet. He wouldn't back off. And the government's prosecuting him for four felonies, seeking 20 years imprisonment because he checked out the evidence of a police murder. Can you tell me a little bit more about the case, like how it started, why he got involved in this in the first place? Well, the case involved a suspect who was being questioned in the backseat of a car, and the police thought he was trying to swallow his evidence. So they cut off his flow of oxygen until he was so ill that he died when they got him to the hospital finally. Sergeant Esqueda is responsible to oversee incidents involving the trainees that he was supervising as a training sergeant. So he was doing his job, and he discovered that there'd been a murder. And when he tried to challenge it internally within the department and with the city council in Joliet, his whole world caved in. What did he try to do? Did he first raise it to a supervisor, and then when that didn't work, he went to elected officials? He first tried to raise it with a supervisor. When the supervisors refused to even talk about it, he leaked the information to the media and the city council, which he had a First Amendment right to do for a government crime. And he wasn't charged with blowing the whistle. He was charged with finding the evidence. They charged him with four felonies of five years each for the different documents that he studied in order to discover that there was a murder. What's the status of the case now? He's awaiting trial. In 2020, Frank Serpico came on the show, and he said that getting other cops on board with essentially riding out their colleagues is not easy. How could this law address this cultural issue, this blue wall of silence that's ingrained in police institutions? So much of the culture of silence is based on fear. And the police departments are ruthless against anyone who challenges something that couldn't be defended in public and would threaten their identity in society. That's why there's such a greater proportion of criminal prosecutions of police whistleblowers who are blowing the whistle on crime than any other sector that I've worked in. It's a high-stakes, ugly sector. And the first step in changing culture is to change the laws. That won't automatically do it, but all of a sudden it becomes respectable to advocate doing the right thing instead of illegal (laughs) to advocate doing something that really is the right thing for the public if the wrong thing for the government. Mr. Serpico, he's a real trooper. He's agreed to work the halls of Congress with me on this legislation, and he inspired all sorts of law enforcement informal whistleblower support organizations like the Lamplighters Society, based on what Mr. Serpico thinks whistleblowers should be called, Lamplighters. And they've got members all over the country. There's over 40 whistleblowers who put their names out supporting these reforms. It's lonely in the big picture, but there's a critical mass of gutsy, honest public servants that we need to be protecting. You said there's 40 police officers who were also whistleblowers who have put their name to this legislation? I think we're up to 42 or 43 now. It it keeps increasing. And some of them are current officers. Oh, absolutely. Federal, state, and local police officers, not the police bureaucracies, but so many of the rank and file officers, they didn't join the police to beat up on minorities. Uh, They didn't join the police to make money off of drug dealing. 
They join the police to defend the public. And they just can't handle turning into the opposite of everything that they dedicated their life to. I mean, this is a general phenomenon for whistleblowers. As one of my clients said, Tom, I'm going to have to shave every day of the rest of my life. And I want to be able to look in the mirror when I do it. This new uh, proposed legislation, your team pushed for similar whistleblower protection in the George Floyd Policing Act of 2021, which ultimately failed in the Senate. What's different this time, are you hoping? Well, the George Floyd legislation hit the political wall over greater controls for the police. But there was a consensus, and neither side was objecting, to whistleblower rights for the police. And Representative Connolly's legislation, H.R. 6762, it's a second bite of the apple. And whistleblower protection is half of this reform. The other half is to have a federal inspector general who would circumvent the conflict of interest of local police departments investigating themselves. You know, if they wanted to clean their own house and do it properly, they still could. But whistleblowers would have an alternative because so many times when you blow the whistle internally, it's like turning yourself in. What kind of opposition do you hear on Capitol Hill to this? Inertia. I haven't briefed an office yet that had objections to this legislation. It's just a matter of the members of Congress deciding that it's in their interest to assert leadership on this issue. That's why we're issuing this report, and that's why we're so grateful to you folks for getting the word out. Tom Devine is the legal director of the Government Accountability Project. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. Coming up, calls to defund the crime beat in Philadelphia. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Matt Katz, sitting in for Brooke Gladstone. In this hour, we've considered different ways to consume if it bleeds, it leads journalism. But what about just throwing out the whole genre and starting over? Tahid Chappelle is the Philadelphia Project Manager for Free Press, a nonpartisan organization devoted to bettering journalism. A few years ago, Chappelle and his co-author Mike Rispoli published an article for Harvard University's Neiman Lab titled Defund the Crime Beat. Their case? Crime reporting doesn't center the communities it covers. Instead, it has always leaned on the source that journalists find easiest to call when something happens, the police. Tahid, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you co-wrote a piece on why the crime beat needs to go. Isn't crime news, though? And how do citizens learn about crimes committed in their communities, which is something I would want to know, if there isn't someone on the crime beat? We can transform the crime beat. A lot of the reporting that we associate crime reporting with is only one side of the story. It's only one perspective. And it's not actually informing people the reasons as to why a crime is happening or why a crime or crimes continue to happen. Now, for example, we know that in Philadelphia, there's a huge housing problem. There's a huge homelessness problem. There's a huge mental health problem. There's opiate problems. There's all these other problems that exist and put people in very precarious positions. But the problem is, is that when we see stories around crime, we don't get to hear from people who actually have lived in those communities and can help provide the nuance and the context as to what has been going on. Journalists are so pressed to publish, 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 and produce content 
that they have a closer connection with police. And so because police have the relationships with journalists, they are able to drive these narratives much more than community members even have an opportunity to. Does that mean that every 30-second story on the nightly local news needs to get at the systemic issues that led to whatever murder they might be reporting on in that moment? Why can't that happen is my question. If we as journalists are supposed to inform the people, Hmm. I think that there are ways for us to actually look at how we do the news in the first place and start to ask the questions as to why we are determining what types of stories are more important than others when we haven't heard historically from black and brown communities that these are the stories that aren't actually keeping them safe or keeping them informed about their neighborhoods. If I'm producing the local nightly news in Philly, I would probably push back and say there was an average of more than a murder a day in Philly last year. And the kind of journalism that you're talking about requires days of reporting. And it's just not feasibly possible given their resources, their newscast, and the way they've always approached these sorts of things. As someone who's you know worked in TV as well, I definitely could see that perspective. In fact, I've had conversations with executive producers around the way that we do typical crime stories. And I do have a special heart for reporters in TV because the time crunch is there and it is very apparent. But it is up to us, I think, as journalists to take a step back and say, are we doing the best to make an impact and actually keep people safe? And if not, then what do we need to do to start changing these systems for the better of the communities that are actually impacted by this violence? Are you arguing that if we can't add this kind of important context that you're describing, then we shouldn't cover the story at all or or maybe not air it that night? I would say not cover the story at all, but reframe, reframe the coverage. One thing that I tell a lot of journalists and something that we try to encourage at Free Press is, let's say for an entire month that crime briefs were put on pause. Let's say, for example, the Philadelphia Inquirer's nightly reporter gets a bunch of different press releases from cops, but decides not to publish these quick one-paragraph police-said crime briefs. Instead, Mm -hmm. let's say he notices that a lot of these shootings are happening in Germantown. What if for a month, instead of publishing what police said, he goes in and spends an entire month talking to all the neighborhood people, the block captains, the community organizers, And he starts to form uh, understanding or context as to why these shootings might be happening or who the people that are not just behind the gun, but the families and, and the victims and the neighbors. And instead of having a paragraph story, what if we had multiple paragraphs that actually talked about the neighborhood and said, well, this crime has been happening, but we also noticed that this community's poverty has increased, that housing has become unaffordable. And having those levels of context and nuance, I think, is something that people would actually want to learn more about these neighborhoods and figure out a way to help support rather than what typically happens is the stereotyping begins when police have the centering of the narrative. Could the Philadelphia Inquirer do that for all of the 500 plus murders there were in Philly last year? I'm not sure if they would be able to do 500 stories on that. But nothing stops them from trying and also nothing stops them from understanding, is this the type of stories that community members want? Is this the type of story that makes you feel safe or informed? Because right now I can tell you, at least in the community organizing and the information that we've received here at Free Press and with our community members, places like, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer 
and other TV news outlets are not addressing those issues. Earlier in the show, I spoke to Laura Bennett. She's the director of the Center for Just Journalism. And we talked about a variety of the longstanding issues in crime coverage, like dehumanizing language or the use of passive voice, like saying officers were involved in a shooting or a bullet killed a girl instead of officers shot and killed someone. Could we just try to make these improvements fix this sort of language, avoid dehumanizing words like perp, uh, center communities more? Is, is there a middle ground to improving the crime beat as opposed to defunding it and removing it entirely? Can those small reforms happen? Yes, of course. There are ways for reporters and newsrooms now to start using more humanizing language, using more people-first, identity-first language. Those are things that a lot of people have been explicitly asking for, and those are changes that all journalists and reporters should be shifting to. Personally, I will always still continue to advocate that the crime be as we know it should be completely abolished. Why not call that the police accountability beat? Why not call that the community listening beat? And actually look at it from the communities that have been historically harmed by these institutions. What about the public safety beat? This shift is needed now more than ever. At WNYC, where I'm a reporter, I'm on the public safety desk. So that is what we now call it. It's a subtle, but I think significant change. I applaud that move, and I think that that's something that helps not just journalists understand what they should be covering, but I think it also helps editors reframe how they discover and what they determine is public safety. This is work. This is important, necessary work. But we're talking about enormous systemic change to a legacy profession. Are you optimistic? No, I will be honest. (laughs) I am not. You're a true journalist then. (laughs) I'm not optimistic given the current health of the industry. But what I am optimistic about is community members and leaders taking up media in their own hands and trying to figure out ways to be better storytellers and using the resources that they have to tell their own stories. Tawheed, thank you for your work, and I wish you the best. Thanks for having me. Tawheed Chappelle is the Philadelphia Project Manager for News Voices, a nonpartisan organization devoted to bettering journalism. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Michael Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candace Wang, and Suzanne Gaber, with help from Aki Camargo. The heavy lifting for this show was done by Max Balton. Zandra Ellen writes our newsletter, and our show is edited by our executive producer, Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Andrew Nerviano and Adrian Lilly. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke will be back in a week. I'm Matt Katz. 